And it is the dawning of the age of hilarious. Welcome everybody to Wednesday night vibrant. It's going to be a great time. Got my main man, Gabriel here. I should move him. He should be next to me and I should be on the left. Like he should be my right hand man. (laughs) And we got Mario, AKA symbolic studies. And then our special guest joining us tonight is Emily Ridout, astro yoga teacher, folklorist all around cool cool friend of mine i'm really happy that she has asked to come back and is not scared off by our weird syncretism and uh <laughs> giant leaps in in um logic <laughs> i gotta say though before we get on 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 with it everybody in the chat if you wanted to do us a favor and let somebody know personally that you would think would like this type of conversation about the stream and get them in here to the party room because once they get into the live chat the party room they're like you know i'm hooked and you guys know about that. It's all fun. You guys love being here. I appreciate you all. And I have to give a big shout out here to Logan, who says he just placed a big order through Clive DeCarl using my affiliate link. You can find that link in the description of every episode of this show or the main show, Interverse. And Clive, you could call it supplements, but I would just call it nutrition. Things like magnesium and vitamin C, absolutely crucial for your healthy functioning. And if you use the link to buy some of the best quality versions of those things that you could get anywhere from Clive DeCarl, who you can hear in past episodes of this show or all over lots of great shows like Crow Triple Seven. I get a nice kickback from that. And it is a very nice commission. Like they're super generous, more than they need to be. I, I highly appreciate that affiliate link and I don't push it as often as I should. So thank you, Logan, for the reminder and for getting some great supplements for yourself. Cost you nothing extra to use my link. And, you know, you get to support the show in the process. Infomercials aside, we are here to talk about esoteric astrology, the eclipse coming up. How crazy is the astrology in October? <laughs> if you guys want to catch more of Emily's work or get teaching through her, like to get certified in astro yoga, for example, emilyridout.com is her website. And I should pass it over to you, let you introduce what you do again for anybody that may not have heard you speaking with us before. What's up, Emily? Hey, what's up? Thanks for that cool introduction. And yeah, I think I've been on here a couple times. So some of you all are very familiar to me. But for those of you who might be new to me, I'm an astro yoga specialist. I train professional astrologers and amateur astrologers who are working on learning astrology and then yoga teachers who are working on learning the art of astro yoga, which is the astrology aligned energy and physical body connections with how you move in sort of divine symmetry. So that's what's up with what I do. I do have a course coming up on astrology. So if anyone wants to learn astrology, you can hit me up. Um, that starts next week. And other than that, I'm just stoked to be here with you guys. And Wally gave us a shout out too. What's up, Wally? <laughs> can you say hi? <laughs> awesome pupper that you got there. Hey, yes. <laughs> Let me outside before the light is gone. I know. Yeah, so you're starting a new course. Is this like a 101? I'll let you let him out and then <laughs> you can answer my question. I feel like it's Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. <laughs> Dogs come first. That is just, you know, the laws of nature. 
but yeah, are, is your new class coming up? Can you tell us more about that? What people could expect from it? Uh, your goals for your students, what you would want them to hopefully be have achieved or be able to do for themselves after the course? How long does the course run? You know, give us all the details. Okay, well, it's six weeks and it's designed to take you from the beginning to knowing how to read your chart. And it's, you know, my big thing is people love horoscopes. They love going to astrologers. But what is really useful in astrology is learning the symbolism of it and being able to use it like a map. So if you want something to happen in your life, for example, anything from spiritual development to having more money to harmonious relationships, right? Those things are particular energetic formations in your particular chart. So my goal with this is to teach people to self-educate themselves into being able to get what they want. Because when you get what you want, if you're a good person, it's going to add to the net joy of the world. And your desires will naturally become higher and higher, right? So regardless of where you're starting, like you might just want some food, right? (laughs) Or like shelter. And then later on, you'll want higher and higher things for yourself. You'll want better and better things for yourself. And you'll actually start to make a really amazing impact. So that's the point of Astrology Academy is get people to know how to do that. I have a bunch of bonuses where I like teach you how to read couples charts or um, learn about medical astrology, just the basics of those things. So it's meant to take people into like knowing and knowing in a way where you can feel kind of like, like you're a respectable astrology buff. You're not just like a person making things up. Yeah. And then probably spark a lifetime of further study. Once they have the keys, they'll be able to maybe do that study on their own more easily. Definitely. So once you know the information in this course and they do meet with me, um, I make myself available to people in this course at least once a week so they can come and ask questions about their charts. Um, It's meant so that you can then if you're listening to an astrologer and you hear them say something, you're going to know what they're talking about and you're going to have a far more intelligent understanding of the interpretation in such a way that if you run across an astrologer who maybe doesn't quite know exactly what they're saying, or they have a very narrow view of interpretation, you'll be able to understand what that aspect is, what that transit is, and be able to be like, oh, I actually have an intelligent purview here. It's kind of like being literate and watching the news, right? You'll be like, Hmm, I have a bit more of a skeptical eye maybe for some of the stories or I understand, you know, if you've ever been a part of a journalism cycle or if you've ever been a part of um, digital storytelling in terms of documentary filmmaking, right? You know that there's a lot that's not seen or mentioned in the storyline, right? And so this is meant to give you an intelligent understanding of astrology in a way where you can use it for real benefit. And I've seen like, it's crazy. Like at this point in my career, I've seen like hundreds of people use this to completely alter the course of their lives and like 
not to go on a big woo-woo tangent, but I was meditating on um, like string theory and quantum mechanics yesterday. And I was thinking a lot about um, how we exist in the quantum field and the mechanisms of our choices and how they actually alter the unfolding of the universe over time, right? Like every individual who exists alters multiple I want to say like points, but it's points in time, space, reality, and beyond that. Like we alter the, the harmonic and the geometric proportions of what reality ensues to be. So anyway, that might've been more than you wanted to know, but I get really jazzed up and want to share this stuff. No, I think it's great. I like, you know, we're all here wondering the same thing. How much does our free will choice have an effect on the reality? And I know a lot of astrologers out there that are maybe not the most helpful kind would be prescriptive and like, this is your fate, but (laughs) it's way, way more interesting to look at life like options rather than fatalism. And I was wondering, I wanted to kick it over to Mario because I figure you've probably done some studies of your own chart in your day (laughs) and is there anything you know you can answer this question or take it any other direction but is there anything that you have actually worked on tried to achieve in your life or change about yourself that you consulted your own chart to get ideas of how that might work better for you yeah for sure um you know it's really funny because i focus a lot on astrology on my channel, right? I'm always talking about the signs right now. I'm talking about Libra and everything. Um, But I almost think that being able to learn how to read a chart is like my last frontier. (laughs) You know, it's something that I'm like building up to. So I kind of figured that I would get a really good symbolic foundation down. And then I think that when I choose to kind of uh, step forward into that role of maybe reading charts, I'll be just that much better equipped to do that. Um, but, you know, I've heard a lot of little things from friends who have read my chart. And for the life of me, I honestly, it's so strange uh, just what you retain and what you don't retain. Because a lot of my chart, I still do not have memorized. I have friends that know my chart better than I do, you know, but there are several things that I have heard over the years that definitely have stuck with me. And it makes me realize, you know, just another aspect of who I am and how I can better just kind of navigate the oncoming waters and everything. Um, and so, yes, I'm aware of certain things like that within my chart. Um, I'm not sure how much you want me to get into <laughs> with all of that, but I have found it to be very helpful. I find that when people have read my chart, I'll usually pick up like two or three really key things, even though they've said a lot, there's two or three things that usually really stick with me. And uh, the last time I got my chart read, Um, It was very, very interesting what the person said regarding, uh, you know, what I seek in relationships. And I know another reading, uh, my relationship with money and my relationship with time and, you know, things like that. So, yeah, absolutely. I try and keep it in mind, but it's not something that's always at the forefront of uh, of how I operate and do things. Um, I think, though, that will be something down the road that I spend more time with for sure. But actually, uh, as we're kind of talking here, I just had a quick question for Emily regarding her astro yoga which i find really fascinating so do you change your yoga routines 
uh, by chance based on what's happening in the stars? Is there a correlation there or is it kind of a separate sort of thing? Oh, definitely. I teach all my yoga classes with the current astrology transits in mind. Some transits are slow. So sometimes we'll do the same sort of thing for like two years, right? While the lunar nodes transit, there'll be certain pieces that come in. Um, But yeah, I change them and I change them sometimes daily according to what's going on. And that's just because, you know, I'm sitting here reading charts all day. So it's, it's not too hard. And I've been teaching yoga for 13 years. So it's not too hard for me to I don't like sit down and journal out a flow, but I do know what the chart is, know the exact physiological associations and then teach a meaningful flow around those energies. So I love that. That is so powerful. Very cool. You know, it's one way to enact. So for people who get worried about reading their charts, right? Because they're like, oh, it's going to be too much. I'm going to have to remember to embody this energy. It's just when you want to change, right? You want a better feeling relationship or money or whatever, right? You go to that point in the chart and you enact change. And the change you enact is inside yourself. So one way to do that, right, is the yoga, the yoga flow, because that literally alters your brain body chemistry and puts you in alignment with what you want. Gotcha. That makes perfect sense. I'm into that. Yeah. There's just an endless amount of possibility with the, once you're talking about the zodiacal man and then the, there's infinite ways to move the body as well. And I think we get real stuck in just a few range of movements in our Western society behavior model. So like knowing astrology, knowing yoga deeply enough that you can actually just intuit what would feel right to do (laughs) based on all the charts you've been reading today, that would be a pretty cool skill. Well, and none of you guys have done, I think, yoga with me, but I will admit that the yoga I teach is very idiosyncratic like I have people do facial lymphatic drainage and like front channel lymphatic drainage in the middle of class sometimes or just sometimes I just go on the I live in Eugene Oregon and we're very fine with everyone being as yoga-y as we want so it's um it tends to it tends to go well though when you bring it all in like the electromagnetic sphere of the body, the movement of the chakras, right? The lymphatic drainage points, neurology, all of it. The lymph drainage of the lymphatic nodes in the face has been a big topic coming up. I've had like multiple people either just talk to me about it or consult with me or inquire about if tuning or tuning forks can help with that. And Yes, they can actually. (laughs) So I'm wondering about like maybe some of your strategies for that, because it is an area of our physiology that doesn't, you know, once it gets stuck, it's kind of like you need to prime the pump somehow and get things flowing again. And it's just like, as far as a knowledge base, no, if you go through kindergarten to 12th grade, you're never going to find out about that unless maybe you have an anatomy class and maybe it was a particularly good teacher. And even if they did talk about it, it might just be like, there's another piece of information from high school that is totally lost. So, you know, that is a huge thing. The, the lymph 
flow of lymph in the face can be, can totally make or break how you, how you feel, how you're able to breathe. Like, I mean, it's your face, (laughs) it's your facade. Like there's nothing that you feel more intensely than something going on on your face. All of your main sensory organs are up there with it. So it's a big deal. And uh, a lot of the techniques that you can learn to do that actually will leave you in a pretty sore and even like irritated, bruised lymph state. So I'm kind of curious about like what you teach and in your yoga e Eugene, Oregon. Yeah, well, so I always start with pumping the terminus even though it's a little weird to stop your whole class and be like, massage right here, right? Because that's where the lymph channels drain to go back, right? Because when we're talking about lymph, one of the main functions of lymph is immunity, right? It's what keeps things that get into us, you know, moving along out. And and it balances the fluids in the body. So, um, So moving around here, right? And then... I'll just massage the face, but first I'll open up. There's a big lymph channel under your sternocleidomastoids. So if you pull there, it usually feels good, right? Um, And then I usually wake the muscles of the face up. So I'll make people exercise their face muscles. This is more than you needed to know probably, but. No, I'm here for the nitty gritty details. Okay. So, I mean, there's also lymph like under the armpits, right near to the, where the chest connects right to the armpit. So want to open that up. Usually you'll have flowed for a while in yoga, right? So you'll have, you'll be all, you know, pulling. And then I have people open their jaw as wide as possible, stick out their tongue as far as possible. Open their eyes as wide as possible without wrinkling their forehead. So do you just say, look like Kali? Just do the Kali face? I usually put them in a very difficult yoga pose and make them (laughs) do this to distract them from being (laughs) in the other pose. Um, That's a good strategy because some, you know, some people would just get self-conscious about the fact that they're making a, a face. Yeah, you know, it can... It can get weird, <laughs> but so stick the tongue out, open the eyes. And then sometimes I'll do eye motion because that's involved in your brain body connection. So if you can open your eyes as wide as possible, so you look crazy and then look up into the side as far as you can. Yep. <laughs> you get some stuff going on there and then you do a face massage and it's like knuckles out. And then up, right out to the temples, and then up either side of the eyebrows. You can do the scalp too. Um, and then by the nose, by the mouth, around the cheekbones, and up. And then either side of the chin, around and up. And then you repeat pulling your sternocleidomastoids into oblivion. And then, you know, there's more lymph channels that drain lower in the body. But the head's a big one, especially because people are so in their heads. Yeah, that, this is good information. Uh, so I just found a phone anagram. 
Lymph and phlegm. Yeah, you're right, actually. That is basically an anagram. You would Lymph do it with a Y phlegm. instead of an E, but it's still phlegm. That's kind and of no fun. G, I guess. But yes, phonetic anagram, those count, in my opinion. Nice. The gooey bits <laughs> of body. <laughs> what was that? I said the gooey bits of the body. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, and indeed. that's like totally, totally ignored by a lot of people or the yeah. strategy is take antihistamines or some over the counter, you know, blame it on the allergies. But if we don't help our body on it, do what it could do on its own, we don't even know what's possible or how easy that would be. Like I, I'm really, I don't have it with me cause it's packed for the trip that I'm about to go on. But the weighted tuning fork is an incredible tool for exactly what you're talking about too, because you can just slide it along the places, all the places that Emily just described using your hands on. And sometimes, you know, if you go too far with this part and you press too hard, it will hurt for days. <laughs> and sometimes just to get something moving, you kind of would have to go pretty hard uh, whenever there's a big clog. And the gentle vibration of the tuning fork can cause the stuff to drain and flow very, very easily and only takes a couple minutes. So, yeah. <laughs> Don't you feel instantly more receptive as soon as your bits get some attention? It's super good. It's good to be familiar with your bits. <laughs> That's super so good. Emily, um, you seem like a very thoughtful person. I love, um, you know, the fact that you have a correspondence with astrology and yoga and everything. That is awesome. Uh, I'll be thinking about that for a little while and perhaps I should just sign up for your class. But, um, you know, chance asked me earlier, it's like, what have I learned from my chart? Is there anything that I'm working on? And something that I've always struggled with is having structure, honestly, in my life, I'm way more right brain. I like to kind of be all over the place. I like to stay up late. Uh, you know, so having kind of like a structure and a stability and a routine is something that I've always struggled with. And, you know, I've heard from many people, it's like, uh, you know, you conquer your morning, you kind of conquer the day sort of thing. So um, do you have a morning routine and what does that look like? Uh, I'd be very curious to know. I'm sure you do, <laughs> but uh, please let me know what's going on with that. I do have a morning routine. Also, thank you, Mario. I have a question for you. Just oh, nice. what, what year were you born? 1984. Dun, dun, dun. I was like, I wonder where his Saturn was that he feels that way. Uh, we'll have to look it up. Well, everyone say yeah, hi to yeah, my dad. Sure. Hey, dad, I'm glad you're here. Hey, oh dad. God. That's hi. awesome. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, I do have a morning routine. I'm not intense like like many people. Um, I don't have like a morning routine where I like, but I usually wake up when I wake up, um, which usually I'm awakened early. And then I meditate, which involves uh, meditating in my tradition, as well as sometimes I'll chant or do other things with the tarot. And then I eat. <laughs> Nice, nice. Pretty Not, straightforward. Yep. But if it works for you, obviously, that is like the main thing, right? Mm -hmm. 
similar question to Chance and Gabe too. If you have any opinions about that, uh, Chance, you you seem to be really on it. You take good care of yourself. Uh, you do your sound healing and and things like that. Have you ever discussed your morning routine? You know, I feel like uh, the the struggle is keeping it consistent, <laughs> but. The ideal morning routine for me is, uh, it's probably, okay, this is probably not the best thing, but usually the first thing I do is <laughs> some kind of a beverage <laughs> with just like catching up on whatever type of correspondence came in the night before. So what that looks like is like coffee in front of the computer for a little bit. <laughs> maybe that's not the best thing. Um, more ideal would be to maybe jump straight into the movement practice, but. Uh, the first thing I do after that would be Qigong flow, depending on the time and how much I feel like comfortable with doing. I probably will spend an uh, average of maybe 40 minutes on that, but on a bigger day, maybe an hour, hour and 20. And then if there's also the feeling of comfortable time for it, I would also meditate. But, you know, a lot of times the it, it ends with that <laughs> with the qigong but the best case scenario if, to be consistent with would be qigong and then a meditation now, i don't know if it's ideal or not but like i like to have the movement before the sitting a lot of people will do their meditation first thing which is a good strategy too just to make sure it gets done but for me i'm like i was just still <laughs> i was just laying there for seven or eight hours so that's uh that's my ideal morning routine. I think it's optimum to move first if you're going to move. I usually don't do movement in the morning because I wound up teaching yoga later, but it does set you up nicely. Yeah, what about you, Gabriel? Fun, what do you do? I've got a fun routine with my garden. While my while my water's boiling for coffee. Uh, I've really gotten into the barefoot walking and that was uh, like, I think you guys were doing that in the winter and I, uh, I like explicitly bare feet on snow. Yeah. I think I did one or two, you know, I got in there a little bit, but now I'm like really feeling it. And I've been like, so I uh, walk my garden while the water's boiling barefoot. You know, I choose where I'm going to donate my uh, coffee grinds uh, into the garden and just check out the scene. And then I, Actually, uh, I have this kale plant, and uh, I clip my kale, and I chop it up and go feed it to my guinea pigs. And uh, the guinea pigs, uh, you know, twice a week we change their cage, and then, you know, that goes into the garden too. So it's like uh, I feel plugged into the cycle of life. And something about doing it barefoot, like, has really deepened the sense of plugging in, you know? Uh, and, and generally by the time the guinea pigs and the animals are fed, uh, my coffee's boiling. And then I plug into the computer and start, and start messing around with whatever came in overnight and, you know, whatever nice. inspirations I have to share. Yeah. Got it. Cool, man. I'm glad you mentioned the barefoot thing. So I was inspired this morning because I am trying to get into a better uh, routine, morning routine and have some sort of habit that works for me. And so uh, I pretty much went outside first thing in the morning when I woke up barefoot, grounded, and then I peed outside too. And so I don't know if I'm going to make that like a normal thing, but we have the space and the privacy to do it. So I'm going to start doing that. Uh, I heard someone talk about that. I'm like, you know what? That makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to give that a go. 
It's and then getting the morning sun as well, you know, and everything else. So it was actually, it was very nice. So we'll see if that sticks. Hopefully it does. Yeah. And I will add, I like to do the Qigong outside. Um, uh, I wish it was more in the direct sunlight, but my backyard is facing the West. So the rising sun is on the other side of the house. Maybe ideal would be to also be getting those first rays of sunlight because the sunlight is different at different times of day. and. Your body needs all of those codes. It's like crazy <laughs> how much of the variety of solar energy information we miss out on being indoors all the time. So yeah, good, good, good idea. Good on you, Mario. Peeing outside, take that male privilege, take advantage of it. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I will. You've, you're claiming the earth. The letter, the letter P is literally a flag. The row is a flag. Ooh, nice. Nice. So right putting, on. You're yeah. your flag in the ground, literally. <laughs> For sure. Uh, I'm taking this inspiration from my cat, talk too. to our guest who we outnumber in gender. <laughs> it's okay because I used to be a person whose job entailed teaching people how to pee outside. So <laughs> what was that matter. job? Like a tour guide in the wilderness? Um, yeah, I taught in an outdoor science school in my 20s. And I also taught in Fiji for a while. And both of them, for some reason, I was the person who gave the bathroom talk. Maybe my <laughs> skill set just put me in there. But I've explained to many preteens how and teenagers how to go to the bathroom in the forest. <laughs> so... I'm glad you pee outside. I also like to step outside barefoot. It's funny you mentioned barefooting because I actually saw, I love walking barefoot, but this was next level for me. I just went and climbed a mountain um, in Colorado called Mount Blanca and it's 14,000 feet. It was more challenging than I was expecting. And when I was about, we were like rock climbing the rest of the way up, right? Bouldering up. There was this man coming down and he was barefoot. And we were, and we were like, oh, <laughs> that's next level barefooting. So Yeah, people in Colorado are so next level. I, I watch guys jogging with their dogs barefoot on rock trails. And it's like they're dragging their dog behind them. <laughs> they're so hardcore that their dog is behind them. There's this level of body intelligence. I don't know how to describe it. Like your feet have eyes or something where I look at it sort of, I made this realization about myself. And so it's only subjective, but when I was younger, I used to have a common problem of stubbing my toes on furniture all the time, like horrible jumping up and down, holding my foot, cursing and <laughs> screaming. And this was like a daily thing, a couple times a day, maybe. And it was for my whole life. And then when I got into Qigong as a movement practice and got more in tune with my inner sensitivity to energy and probably other things were going on at that time in my life, I was learning meditation or I had learned it and I was practicing it for a few years by the time I got into Qigong. But either way, for whatever reason, at the time that I got into a regular Qigong practice, I stopped having stub my toe moments just went away. And I think it has to do with like body awareness body sensitivity, body intelligence. I don't know. But in the same way, 
walking outside barefoot, which I do for at least like 45 minutes a day, you know, walk on, I'm not like trying to brag here or anything, but you get to the point where even gravel isn't that painful. And there's something about it that in the rare time where I actually like step on something that hurts, I always notice what I'm thinking about at the time or what if I'm like spiraling (laughs) in some way. And that there's always some reason that I've been taken out of the present moment at the exact time that I do the foot injury. So I think as a mindfulness practice, the barefoot thing, even jogging barefoot, you know, I've been doing it in winter, even in snow. Yeah, we're way stronger <laughs> than we think. And our ability to resist extremes has been grossly lied about. <laughs> but, you know, like we're our comfort culture, our technological culture, we've really been coddled in a lot of ways. And I'm not saying everybody needs to walk barefoot in snow, but you could. It's actually doable. And the, as a practice that gets you paying attention to I don't know, just being in the moment and not like getting, getting you noticing whenever you get out of flow. Basically, it's a flow state thing that uh, if you're in a flow state and you are not sort of in the, oh, we're going to step on a spiky thing. Oh, there's a rock. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> like you don't even have to necessarily watch the ground that much. There's sort of this automatic danger sense. <laughs> I wouldn't even call it danger sense. You're just able to do it. And I don't know how else to describe it, but there is a, mystical kung fu to walking barefoot that (laughs) is achievable and i would consider myself like a yellow belt i think you can get pretty far with it yeah absolutely dude i'm right there with you and uh i like the fact too that you know just feeling the different textures as well you know and realizing that uh you know nature just has all of these different textures and ways of expressing itself and everything else is something that i i like doing as well so the grass feels different than the gravel that feels different yes the wearing the, the shoes actually the is leaves. taking away one of a dimensionality of your sensory apparatus it's like it be it's almost akin to once you get used to walking barefoot a lot putting on shoes almost feels like you're eating without your taste buds <laughs> right right yeah exactly very well put you know it, uh i'm thinking of like the way you were saying that you you have like a uh your mind an awareness in your feet that is awakened it makes me think of how the hanged man is upside down he's the inverted card and uh and he's often hanging from the t- like a tau cross where there's oftentimes the the top the tau which is very similar to the word toe and so he's you know he's got his toes where his head should be and his head where his toes should be so there's kind of, that's what comes to mind i'm just and the tav is the termination of the old alphabet and the toes are the termina- termination point of the body if you're starting at the head. Yeah, yeah, that all comes to mind. That's the top, pretty creepy. The top relates to the world card. So it's the relationship. So he's del- he's symbolically resting all of his weight upon universal or world consciousness right where you are at once engaged in the world and fully aware of the complexities and higher manifestations of spirit right which is why his head is symbolically usually 
in a running river that's a dried riverbed because his mind is steeping in the subconscious thing. So, uh, which actually the subconscious, actually the 12th card is the card of Pisces, right? Which relates to the feet. Exactly right. I was just going to say that. Another thing too, that uh, just popped into my mind is that the Tav or the T, which is a cross, the very same symbol is used as an indicator for the sun. And sometimes it's more of an X than a cross, but the, you know, we know that the, the solar deity is on a cross, which is a T. Uh, there's also like, when you look into, I think it's in the book of Ezekiel and this is an old Mithraism. Uh, and I think, I think it's practiced in some parts of the East, like in India and in Buddhist areas as well, anciently, but there's a practice of, Marking the forehead with a T or a cross or an X as a symbol of the like obedience to the Messiah who is soul. And so in the hanged man, he's putting his, <laughs> his top, his toes, uh, while he's like on a cross, his soul is going up at the top, <laughs> which is representative also the in many layers of soul sol the soles of his feet and then the sol it's like he's connecting a circuit in a way yeah i was yeah. makes me think of that bridge between you know as we cross from pisces back into aries when the end becomes the beginning yeah the circle is the soul light consciousness and the cross is the understanding that the light consciousness emanates emanates into physical manifest reality. And so the realization of the light in physical manifest reality is like what most of those religions, at least on their esoteric level, were trying to point out, right? They were like, hey, the light's already here, Um, which is why a lot of the letters they use to describe the light, you know, are X's, L's, you know, antiquated forms of V and T. And a lot of the, whatever letter they would use a lot of the time, probably more often than not, it would be related to, or would literally equal the value of 10, which is like the yod, the hand, you know, the, (laughs) the soul son being a representation of the creator. And so what do hands do hands create? There's 10 fingers on the hand. You make things with your hand. Anyway, the the X or the 10 being the sun is an old thing as well. Uh, and even in a lot of Eastern languages, I have to look up. I had a, I have like a list noted of all the words for 10 in other languages. <laughs> even in Hungary, there's uh, the chief deity or like one of the main names for God in the old Hungarian mythology is is 10 <laughs> like I S T E N is 10 or Isten. Interesting. It reminds me of 10 relating to Jupiter, which I think is kind of curious, right? T I N. Uh, but also the, uh, the cross, you know, or the X, I know that there's groups who consider the cross within a circle. So a quartered circle to be symbolic of the earth. So I've definitely heard both over the years that it's, it's a solar symbol but there's also a school of thought that says that it's actually a uh, earth centered symbol, the four corners of the earth. And, you know, it's more geocentric as well. So I think it's fascinating that there is these two sort of variations on the theme of what it represents. Um, 
But Emily, uh, I would love if uh, maybe you talked about the astrology of, you know, either what's going on uh, right now or what you're currently interested in forecasting stuff uh, that might be coming around the corner and or uh, anything you have to say regarding Libra, because that is like my jam right now. Mario, thank you. Uh, yeah, I should have been asking those questions. Give us the heads up on what's coming around the bend. I do want to tell you that, but I think I'll also tell you that the circle, the cross and the crescent are the three symbols that make up all of the planetary glyphs. So, um, totally. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when you know those three, you can basically understand what all of the planets do on an esoteric level. Anyway, fun facts, but right now we are actually about to head into eclipse season. This was kind of why I wrote to chance. I was like, it's eclipse season soon. It's going to be, it's going to be nuts because every eclipse season, um, you know, so much in astrology is predictable, but as far as your personal life goes, you cannot predict the future. You can have psychic understanding of what might come up. You can read the energetic structure of what will be, but you can't necessarily be like, I know exactly that, you know, my friend George is going to call me on this time on this day, right? You, you don't know. And so with eclipse season the unexpected gets highlighted more than normal, right? Eclipse season is, you mentioned Yod being the hand of God, which I love that you said that, you know, Yod is the nine, is the letter attributed to the nine, um, the hermit in the tarot, which of course relates to sensation as known through the hands, right? There's something there. Um, but, but we, so with the eclipses, the hand of sort of like the yod comes into play, which is um, things move in and they move out very quickly. And we're, we're redirected, right? If you've gotten too far out of your course, you get pushed right back on track. And this can be incredibly frustrating or freeing, right? Have you ever really wanted something and then the whole of reality is just like, no, 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 right? And then you're like, why not? <laughs> I really want that thing. And then you get, of course, put on your path. And then years later, you're like, oh, that was a pivotal moment. I'm so glad, you know, I went this other direction or was steered this other direction. It can also be very freeing. Maybe you're on a path and you're like, this does not feel good. Um, some things can come in where things really break apart and you break free. Okay, so I, I've i been thinking a lot about this eclipse season because I actually just realized, I was like, ooh, I set my class to start exactly on the day that eclipse season starts. So that's kind of fun. So eclipse season happens when the sun is within 18 degrees of the lunar nodes. So right now the lunar nodes are in Taurus and Scorpio. So toward the end of this Libra season, right on October 19th, we are going to head into eclipse season. We're going to start with a partial eclipse in um, during the new moon. And that's going to be at two degrees of Scorpio. And I'm kind of interested in that one because it's like, 
it's like not just the sun and the moon, it's also invisible Venus being up in there. And when Venus is invisible, you know, it kind of bums us out because we're like, where's the love? Where's the beauty? Where's the abundance? Um, But she's there. We just can't quite see her. So I have a feeling that this eclipse could have something to do with seeing beyond what appearances dictate. And the other thing that's going on there is... When does Venus come out of this rebirth cycle and become visible again? I think she's invisible until... I don't have the exact date in my head, but I think it's December. But it might be late November. But she has a she has a minute of invisibility. We're in the middle of it right now, right? A lot of people, like, this is not a good time. I'm usually like, do whatever you want. You know, we can handle these sorts of transitions. But it's not a good time to make rash life decisions. When I was a kid, I watched a show once called Dharma and Greg. It was about a couple who met at a concert and got married the next day. It's like, don't do that. (laughs) Like, it's fine if you already planned your wedding and you really, I mean, I wouldn't plan a wedding during Venus Invisible or Venus Retrograde personally. But like, if you know the relationship is solid, fine. But don't like meet a stranger. Yeah, because you could look at it like just... If it was coinciding coinciding with uh, some other with the onset of something major, you could look at it like just as correlative to Venus starting a new. You're starting a new phase, you know. But like you're saying, rash <laughs> out of the blue, not thought through. That that's probably not good. But right, it, and you don't have to look at it like whatever I'm doing right now because Venus is invisible. It's definitely the wrong, I'm doing it wrong. You know, you don't have to necessarily go that far. Yeah, it doesn't mean that you can't find love in this time or that if you meet someone that you're suddenly in love with or something, that won't, that doesn't mean that that's bad. But it does mean like don't meet someone and get married the next day or something, you know, like give yourself time to understand what the eclipse has meant for you because things move in very quickly or out very quickly. And some of them, um, you know, you want to make sure that you're going on your highest path and not like your most karmic patterning where you're trying to escape the thing that was actually coming in that was good, right? So, so anyway, so that's going on. And what's kind of weird about that one is that it's also in conjunct Jupiter. And there's, there's been a few in conjuncts recently because eclipse season is actually starting with an in conjunct to Neptune, as well as um, the sun and Venus squaring Pluto and trining Mars. So there's a lot of heavy hitters involved in these aspects. And I, for one, am curious how this plays out, particularly with, I think we talked about the astrology of 2021 last year, did we? And it was like this, Uranus Saturn square was the the thing that happened in 2021 astrology. It just kept happening like three times. And we're in an almost exact square for the final moment of this transit. So we're actually like freeing ourselves from that transit, which was, 
you know, innovation lockdown. authority. What? <laughs> yeah, lockdown. And, you know, who's in charge here, right? You could, you very well might have named that. Who's in charge here, right? Who's the boss anyway? Not to reference another. Yeah, we just had a, a passing of the crown. Critical point. Mm-hmm. And our, you know, uh, King Charles, his uh, his his cipher. They call it a cipher. Is a RC, which is ninety three. All the Thelemites jump up and say, "Hey!" Uh, but it's also uh, Neptunium. It indicates uh, Neptunium is the ninety third element, periodic table, and that's the trident. So King Charles is rocking the trident, and his cipher means Neptune. You know what's wow. interesting too about him, you, like the royals using the word cipher, <laughs> is that in the word cipher probably comes from the Hebrew Shin Pei Resh SPR, which is the same exact word as where we got Sephiroth or Sephiroth. So those are the positions on the tree of life Kabbalistically. If you were, uh, in, if you were like a new age, no stick, no, uh, no stick pan, <laughs> if you were a new age, no stick, you would, uh, prob- that's my new name for them. Gabriel. <laughs> I heard like an infomercial. I was at mom and dad's house. And I heard an infomercial is like, this is the greatest no stick pan ever. And I was like, no stick. That's what I'm going to call them. That way I'm not sullying the actual meaning of the word gnosis by referring to, you know, these simulation theory moron victims as the Gnostics. They're not, but they're no sticks. <laughs> they never stuck to anything long enough to realize that there's the ability to get good out of life if you put good in. But anyway, so his idea of the SPR, Shin, Pei, Resh, Sephiroth, those are like archons in a way of thinking about it because they're like the 10 powers, they're the 10 numerals. Right. The, in a esoteric way, those would be the archons. And Whoa, so by calling you the word cipher comes from this SPR. So by calling, you know, your monogram a cipher, <laughs> you're like referring you're like referring to yourself as an archon, which is a ruler. And uh, interesting too, like, you know, the, the ancient Greek archons or the, the nine magistrates that were in charge of a city, there were always nine. So there's your, we still have that today. It's your Supreme Court, nine judges, nine magistrates, nine gods, because actually the word magistrate is, uh, you could also say the word God with a little G and it mm-hmm. means the same thing in the old dictionary. Right. That's yeah. interesting. Cause it's also referencing the sun and the moon. If you're talking about, um, Pe and Rish, right. Oh, right. Nice. Yeah, because that word is like referring to circuit or cycle. Spiral, spirit, spear. Yeah, nice. there's a lot of there's a lot of words referring to circles, cycles that uh interesting esoterically. Let's maybe weave more on that. Well, one more one more point on that ninety-three. Uh you know that in certain circles they greet each other. Ninety-three. Hey, ninety-three, back at you, buddy. Well, those are also encoding the uh, lunar standstill. It's a it's an it's a significant uh, eclipse cycle. So nine point three 
plus 9.3 gives you 18.6. And that's a lunar standstill cycle. And that's a big deal. They they put a lot of weight on those. So it's uh, it's an eclipse code, but it's like the granddaddy eclipse code. So I just want to put that out there that he is rocking that cipher with the trident. And here we are, like we're saying, going into eclipse season. Very interesting. Uh, I also just want to point out too the RC reminds me of the Rosy Cross, Rosicrucians, uh, and then the cross symbolism with the rose in the middle and everything else. I don't know if there's any connection there <laughs> or whatever, but just thought I would throw that into the mix. Yeah, so <laughs> Sorry, I got really distracted by the chat. Somebody else get it. <laughs> What, what else do you see with the uh, with the eclipses? Like one is a partial oh. lunar, and then there's a full solar. Is that what we're going to come into? Uh, actually, it's a partial solar and then a full lunar. Okay, but, but you got it. You were you were right there, and maybe I misspoke earlier. Who knows? Sometimes when you talk, the words get changed around. But the yeah, so November eighth, there's a full moon, total lunar eclipse. That one's kind of crazy. It's forming a kite formation, which is like a grand trine and then an opposition. So the full moon is this opposition and it's like, I don't know, the sun, south node, Mercury and Venus, right? Yeah. And then the moon has Uranus and the north node up there. And then the Venus point down by the sun has a grand trine with, let's see, Pallas Athena and Black Moon Lilith. And then was it also Neptune? Look at my notes. Yeah. And then also Neptune and it's all in water. And so something with, I mean, when I looked at, sorry, for people who are like, I don't care about the details. Like when I looked at eclipse season i was like oh transformation in the form of water we are this is the audience for the the details okay good so so we know that water represents literal water right we were talking about lymph right but it also represents the ethereal water which to an occultist is i think you guys know because you just rattled off some hebrew letters and i was like good um because water in these systems you mentioned the tree of life in these systems right it represents the nature of material reality as well because to an occultist something solid this rock is actually liquid right and this is what all of the elements sort of do is they represent a piece of what manifest reality is and earth actually is a coalescence of the other three of the four elements. Obviously the quintessence permeates as well. Um, And so with water being transformed, when you recognize that all of manifest reality is liquid, you can change it much more quickly, right? That's what we do in astrology is we learn to kind of quantum leap out of our tendency where we're at our lower vibrational, not getting our needs met, maybe not happy and into the upper, right? Oh yeah. There's a gnosis right there. Um, the, the good kind <laughs> Marty, I don't know if you heard that, but like I'm, I'm now referring to the simulation theorists as no sticks. 
No stick dead. No stick deadpans. <laughs> that way we don't sully the good the good word gnosis. Anyway, sorry, Emily. I love what you're talking about in terms of the fluidity of reality and going with the flow rather than feeling like, you know, we're stuck between a rock and a hard place or a rock and a no stick pan. Yeah, but this is, you know, water is also where transformation takes place outside of our conscious mind awareness, right? So things could be happening based in the collective subconscious. So what we are collectively imagining and dreaming. Um, I, I mean, I know that this is generally, you know, generally we're going toward a good place as humanity. It's just things are kind of rocky sometimes, fluidly rocky. Um, and so one of the best things I would be doing if I were all of us is to sort of guard your mind and at least for your piece of the collective imagination, start imagining the better and better world and maybe don't buy into like the collective dream of, you know, it's not, I know it's Halloween season, but maybe the, (laughs) the movies where everything goes bad, you know, sort of ignore those dream realities for a while and try to hearken in the one you actually want because these eclipses are transformative and transformation is a form of birth and rebirth, right? And this is the life power that animates us experiencing reality in a particular way. And you Can I add a, a little thing to that too? Because we're talking yeah. about water. I want you to hold your thought and definitely pick up where you were, but this seems like really important to interject because I see this a lot, especially with, you know, clients uh, in the tuning process. More often than not, people need help with their left side of their energy body more than their right, typically. And so it's about receptivity. Water is symbolized by a cup. That is the symbol for it in the occult. And that means, you know, water has memory. Mem is the Hebrew letter for water as in memory. <laughs> We all, we all know all these facts, but like, what does it mean then? Because water symbolically of love, creativity, um, healing. Well, if we're correlating that to receptivity and what we want is to usher these things into our life, I think it's key to understand that it's maybe important a lot of the time to get out of our own way of like trying to get it or trying to make the reality conform to like, how do I make reality like the way I want it? How do I change it? You're talking about reality, the world being more water and fluid, water, fluid, receptivity, cup, vessel. So it's really like, how can you relax and accept that it's already the way that you, if reality is already water based, already flow based, how can you just like relax and accept that actually it is good, that you are whole, that you, that there is love that whatever you need is in the environment already, you know, that's how you magnetize, you know, that mag word also gets tied into water as well. Like, you know, what if what you were trying to get already exists in the whole quantum field and instead of making it happen, you just accept it. (laughs) Like, thank you. Put it in my cup. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I have a couple thoughts on that. One is, what if everyone accepted that they actually already have their heart's desire? And if that's different than what they thought their heart's desire was, that there's a place where they can look for some answers and it's not 
by berating themselves into achieving more. Right. Um, I do think so with the it's interesting you mentioned the right left side. I've seen a lot of people talking about gender recently, like a lot um, all the time, all the time. Right. And because there is this element that people are looking at where the divine masculine and the divine feminine are simultaneously healing. And I just would point out for every individual, the masculine and feminine aspects inside yourself with the left, which the left is the feminine, right? They are operating in relative healedness within you um, in a coalesced manner. So the degree to which one is whole, the other is also whole. That's just how parallel things work, right? And so... If people are suffering in their left sides, right, that's the left side crying out for help. Um, usually that's because the right side has bullied the left side a little bit too hard, right? And so we live in a world where to solve um, traditionally more watery um and I'm not talking like men and women, feminine, masculine, but like the feminine side of existence, which is it's the yin embodied. and yang. It's like beyond yeah. biological gender. I mean, biological gender reflects it, but we have to have both sides or both components in, in both genders. Right. We play it out in gender expression externally sometimes, but within ourselves, the full right spectrum exists and so and the um, right side does bully the left side i've noticed that in their biofield that it's like the right sides work damn it (laughs) trying to make it work oh yeah my right side bullies my left side and then but if the right side bullies so what happens right is we live in a culture where even if you look at people who do like self-help type stuff to do more of that feminine embodiment healing work they're like well you need a schedule you need this did you you know they're looking at like the macros and the diet and they're like scientifically doing the things whereas that's not always what it needs so you can't like right side your left side into being happy because what happens is if you right side the left side into being happy the left side will rebel. So your right side will say, these are the nutrients you need, take these supplements, exercise this much, get this much rest, and then you'll be happy, right? And then the left side is like, actually, instead of being happy, I'm now going to completely sabotage you, um, take you down your Neptunian habit realm of escapism, whatever that might be, for an individual and totally stop your ability to get your right side things done. Right. And so people then are like, Oh, something's wrong with me. Cause I'm not, cause I'm not achieving. Right. It's like, I'm overwhelmed because I have so much to do, so I can't do anything. And I'm feeling overwhelmed because I'm not getting anything done because I'm feeling so overwhelmed about how much I have to do. <laughs> you know, like it's this weird, it just does that it becomes like a somersault. Right. And you'll probably notice um, for people who enter into relationships, the people that you or the person that you date or the people you date will often reflect to you your left side or your right side, one or the other. And it's not like if you're a man, you get a left side person or a woman, you you know, it's whatever 
one of those sides usually shows up in your polarity partnerships too. And so you'll know whatever your frustration is in yourself is probably the same frustration you have when engaging with other people, right? And so, yeah, you can't, you can't right side the left side into doing what you want. And you also can't, you can't let either side dictate life, right? You have to have purpose and goal and precision, but you also have to have nurturing and rest and healing work, right? Where you sleep and your body heals itself. That's by the way, the left side is the side that builds your psychic potentials. Uh, It brings different parts of your DNA online, right? It's the thing that receives the light codes and takes it in. So there's a lot there's a lot with both. And I always think it's fun to go inside my own psyche and be like, which side is, who's the bully today? Or are we in harmony? Right. Are we all getting along? Yeah. Cause the, the left side bullies in the passive aggressive way. Like you are weak. You can't do anything. You have no power. <laughs> they both, um, they both can be so wonderful and they both also, if something gets out of balance, yeah. Um, it's one is not, one is not, you don't have to like watch out for one and trust the other. You trust them both. And then they both come and do their, their good work. Emily, have you ever recommended that somebody sleeps in the opposite direction in their bed? to maybe address anything that has to do with this left and right? Um, I'm a big believer in the electromagnetic field patterns of the earth. And so I'm very aware of what direction my head is in. What's the right way? I recently (laughs) flipped my bed the other direction and I can't tell if I did a good thing for myself or not. Um, So I will say in a twist of irony, I live in a very small old house and my headboard is actually not in the direction I prefer. So I do things to help it. Um, I think optimal is east. Okay, so I was on the entirely wrong axis. I was like north for a while and I just changed to south. I'm completely off. So hold on, help me out. Do you mean your head is... Like the the top of your head is pointing east, right? And your feet are to the west. Yeah, that's that is what I understand to be optimal. Um, I actually have a friend who does things like this and once um, saw my bed layout and said, oh, that's good that it's to the because my headboard right now, full disclosure, is to the north and I am not happy that it's to the north. I would rather it not be. Um, If you want to do astral projection and practice leaving your body, that's great. Put your head to the north. If you want restless, don't do it. I had an out-of-body experience when my headboard was facing north. That's like the only time I ever had it was my head was that direction. Right. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) For a few reasons. 
you know, th- this conversation, um, it seems like Hermes and Hermeticism and Mercury is like always appropriate to bring up and talk about. But I feel like there's been several instances throughout uh, this little chat here where I'm just like Mercury, 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 because, you know, Mercury is androgynous as a planet, right? It embodies both the feminine and the masculine. A lot of mercurial symbols are definitely a blending of the two. Um, we just went through Virgo, which is ruled by Mercury. And so I've been thinking about a lot of this stuff recently. Uh, but the other thing is that um, uh, Thoth, Thoth, the Atlantean, you know, he says sleeping to the north is where it's at. Um, and my headboard is not where it ought to be or whatever. But that's kind of curious chance that you said that you had that experience when facing the north. Uh, and then, Emily, you just kind of backed up uh, some of what I had already read about sleeping to the north and what that could do for you if you wanted to do that. So just like, what do you like about the East? Is it because your head is the beginning of your body? It's the Aries and then the sun rises in the East. So it's like you're aligning your head with where, (laughs) with the direction that the head starts. If you, you know, if the Eastern ascendant is the beginning of the Zodiac. Right. Does it make you wake up feeling like I'm ready to spring out of bed and get stuff done? How does that feel? Um, Well, the sun is exalted in Aries, right? Which is the head. Um, with the, so that's sort of the reasoning there as well as like when you do practice, um, it's advisable to face East or at least imagine that you're facing East with the North thing. It's like, yeah, you can astral travel, but like, you don't want to astral travel too much because you want to, you want to come back, right? If you want to be alive, you don't want to astral. Sometimes people think astral travel is so cool. It is. It's, it's cool, but you can send your body the signal that you're ready to be done with it. Exactly. And that's not <laughs> even though I have my headboard to the north, if I were older or <laughs> I would probably not um, live Head in, a in house. the stars, but feet on the ground. <laughs> Don't forget the, the, the body. Yeah, stay with your I mean, and I always think about this as so many people want to astral travel or figure out whatever, or hear star messages. And that's great. But um, it's like very special to be in your body. So it's, it's not something we're tossing to the side. Um, there's actually a lot of interesting mystical information that you'll find when you're in your body. And so I love that you brought up Mercury because, um, and Thoth, right? Which perhaps, Mercury is Thoth, right? That's one idea of where Mercury came from. Why is he the messenger of the gods? Well, because he's our greatest teacher, right? Hermes Trismegistus. Um, So with him or them, right? Because Mercury is an androgen, right? We're looking at, right? Like all the secrets of alchemy are right there with Mercury, right? Like what's it mean? to traverse up the caduceus to the realm of the crown, right? Which is what's symbolized by Mercury and, you know, talked about in Kundalini awakenings or talked about in the answers to alchemy or talked about in um, the, you know, the Kabbalistic tree of life, right? Like how do we, and, and it's hidden in the idea of who, Thoth is, right? Was he a god or a man? 
That's a good question, right? A really good question is, what is the mechanism by which God experiences life? Or whatever you want to call the thing that we call God in Gnosticism, right? And if you think about that question long enough, you might be like, you might be like, hmm, maybe it's everything, right? You might be like, well, maybe, maybe it's, maybe I don't need to astral project to get to some divine experience because maybe I'm in one and I forgot. That's what I liked. That's what I like right there. What you just said, (laughs) I'm all about collapsing that division. I think it was early on priestly grabble like you know you need us to be the ones to talk to god or to visit the spirit world or whatever and we can only do it if you bring us food and build us a really nice temple and make sure that we don't really have to do any work other than tell you what to do (laughs) and at that point you know as soon as you believe that like oh we're in the material world and then the spirit world's over there well at that point you've created exactly the dynamic that you believe in which has separated yourself from God or spirit or source. When in my opinion, this is the spirit world. Yes, there may be spectrums of reality or perception that are beyond our current bandwidth to perceive, but that doesn't mean it isn't here, right? It doesn't because here and now are all that exist. And especially if you have determined for yourself or believe that reality, the principle of mentalism is primary, that all is mind, then for sure separation and distance are mental and conceptual. And for sure, then there's no other side or spirit world. There's here and now, just like there's not actually a present. I'm sorry, there's not actually a future or actually a past. There's only the now. (laughs) Everything else is a concept. I think that applies to the idea of a spirit world or the other side or God. All of that. I think as soon as you're putting it away from yourself, it's almost like uh, giving yourself the excuse for powerlessness or not being responsible or, you know, putting your faith in an, uh, an authority <laughs> like like the priests that, gave, that became those mediators. You know, we can cross over to the spirit world. We got the communication, but you need to pay us for that. Shine. That's the fake shine, y'all. Fiction, (laughs) I will say that I do think it's a mistake when people walk around saying like, well, we're all just gods, right? Because you have to, to, it's like what we were talking about with the Tav, right? It represents that level of consciousness where the consciousness has become so aware that the identification with the ego self is, um, an aspect of awareness, but is not the primary identification, right? And so the the consciousness like we're talking about is like when whatever pinprick of light that is the you that you identify with realizes its own eternal nature and its its, um, interplay in the field of a vastness, which is eternal in both time, space, and omnipotence. And then that's the primary identity, right? That's when 
that level of consciousness predominates. Whereas like all the time, like most people who have that experience and that come back and they're like in the God complex, they still only dip their toes in an infinite. Well, no matter how vast the experience was, we're talking about infinity. So like, you know, there's not really a way to quantify my touching of the infinity was the whole thing and yours wasn't. But my point is just that like, there's always more beyond. And so whatever point, at any point that you assume that now you've like taken on your God consciousness and you, I am God. No, (laughs) there's more than that. There's, there's beyond that. You're identifying again with a a false, a false thing. And yeah, I I don't, I agree with you basically that people, it's foolish to like go around telling everybody they're God. It's more accurate to say God perceives through you. And then maybe sometimes you can dip your toes into an expanded perception that is more God-like, but not God, because that's infinite. It's beyond, you can't, nothing could be the capacitor to hold that, (laughs) that is in any way thingness, right? A good metaphor might be the hourglass. You know, we can no, we can come real close to perceiving the entire hourglass very briefly, but the truth is, we're always at that at the at the gate at the in between point. That's the now, and we can never be all of the past. We can never be all of the future. That's just not possible. All we can bring to bear in this little funnel of the present moment is uh, is just this little shard. That we're shining as bright as we can. And that's nice. why I've just thought this, but you know, a lot of the ancient words pertaining to wisdom, like palace, also retur- refer to gates. And a lot of words referring to gates also refer to mouths. And it just struck me like you may have a whole meal on your plate, but you can only taste what's in your mouth currently. <laughs> oh, nice. That's a good one, too. Whoa, that's awesome. Okay, just real quick. Um, some of the older hermit cards, um, the hermit is not holding a lamp or a lantern, but he's holding an hourglass, which I think is really interesting, given what the card represents and its association with Virgo and Mercury and everything else. And then also, too, there's this, uh, I've seen certain decks particularly the thoth deck where literally the hermit looks like a tongue and so i was already thinking of that card and then you bring up the mouth symbolism uh which i think is really appropriate and interesting i love uh what you mentioned there gabe about just kind of like always being in that state and never really completely understanding (laughs) the days of our lives nice (laughs) you know uh what's entirely happening with the whole system you know because you're always just in this little sliver there. Uh, but that's very appropriate for sure. I think that's cool. The cool thing about Virgo and Mercury too, while we're talking about, cause Virgo and the hermit, right? They're the place they're they're ruled by Mercury, but they're also the place where Mercury is exalted. I, maybe we've talked about this before, but the idea that, Um, To become an enlightened being has physiological components that are, that must be in place for that to happen, right? Um, People know this, right? Because if you eat a psychedelic mushroom, your brain opens into new capacities. And that's a, you know, you don't want to do that to 
get to enlightenment because it's not going to work. It's going to burn your neural pathways partially. I mean, nothing against all these things, but, but as far as like permanent um, awakening of the brain, you know, it's, it's temporary in those things, but Virgo rules the gut. What actually happens when people do these practices to begin to move into greater states of awareness by developing the mechanistic structures of the brain is the intestine actually learns to bring in nutrients in a different way. And so we say Virgo is exalted, right? And then the brain body chemistry shifts. So literally your blood changes, which uh, we were talking about Libra. One of the primary things that Libra is in charge of is the kidneys, right? And it keeps your blood chemistry, right? Kidneys filter the blood. That's where our pee comes from, by the way, right? When you go pee in the morning, that's your blood. <laughs> Goodbye, blood. Um, hopefully it doesn't look like blood. Um, well, it's appropriate that we were talking about pee during Libra. Kind of like the last Interverse episode, we were talking about musical scales <laughs> in Libra. And there's the Golden Dawn, secret to the Golden Dawn. <laughs> <laughs> Drink your first morning pee. <laughs> well, anytime you can make a pee joke. Be careful, Mario. Michelle's listening. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, okay. So one thing that I wanted to get into with Libra is the fact that it's the only sign that is not depicted by an animal or a human or a hybrid. You know, it's a tool. It's the scales. Uh, it's an inanimate object. So to me, that is like really, really fascinating. Um, I have a bunch of different thoughts about it, but, um, Emily, if you have any opinions about Libra symbolism, just kind of in general. I would love to hear them because that's definitely my thing right now. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned Libra is the only one that is an inanimate object, but it's actually an animate inanimate object, right? Because it's the scales that move. And so it represents a mechanistic truth, right? So it's not like, at least from our little mind perspectives, animals and people are wild cards. We don't know what that snake's gonna do over there that scorpion right it's who knows but from the view of a scale you can manipulate it and you can predict what it might do okay um and so when we're talking about libra energy we have to talk about one of the fundamental laws of the universe which is what libra represents which is the law the often misunderstood right law of karma and Libra is the opposite of Aries, right? So we see in Aries, the initial spark of action. In Libra, we see the law that relates to what action is, which is the law of karma, which literally means the law of action. Um, it's a little more complex than just action, though, right? Because it also is inclusive of what the predictable reaction or response is to any one action. Does this make sense? So 
some actions in a closed container are predictable, right? If you shoot the pool cue a certain way, the ball will go a certain way. We have a closed container. That's a physics problem on your physics test in high school. You get an A, right? In real life, we are in a closed container, but one that's so mind-bogglingly vast that we don't understand it. You don't know how the 20 people who were at the grocery store with you earlier were all there and what their days entailed and the complexities of how that happened, or the fact that the earth had been, you know, manifesting the exact nutrients for thousands of years to produce, you know, certain effects in the human body and environment, right? We don't know all of the actions at play in order to predict the reaction. But Libra season is our ability to look clearly, right? This is why Aries rules vision and reason, right? When you can see clearly, you see the actions at play. And if you see the actions at play and the reactions they are creating within the closed container of whatever the environment is, then you can start to take actions to alter your karma, right? We use the example of like, if you throw a ball at a wall, it'll bounce back a certain amount. But if you throw a ball at the wall while you're running at the wall or running away from the wall, it changes what's going to occur. So Libra is our ability to see our own karma and to modify it accordingly. Nice. I love that. Uh, Clarity and vision is a big part of Libra symbolism, which is why in some justice cards ruled by Libra, you will see uh, an eye, you know, a very big present eye sometimes on occasion. And then also just the fact that Lady Justice often is blindfolded, too, I think kind of plays into some of what you're talking about. So that's awesome. That's not the answer I was expecting, but I love that. Oh, what were you expecting? Oh, no, I just wanted to hear your take. I mean, I didn't I I guess I had no (laughs) in a lot of ways, no expectations, but um, I I hadn't heard this specific take and and put this way with everything. But it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I like that. I never really thought about Libra Aries dynamic quite that way before. And. I'm curious, like what you think about this, because it. You mentioned the law of karma being very misunderstood. So, you know, could you elaborate more on like how you understand it? Because for me, how I have come to accept something like karma or even the notion in the Western traditions of sin isn't like some kind of Santa Claus, you know, mystical tallying down of all the things and putting them on a scale or whatever, but more like there's a way that nature operates and then we have free will. And then if we act outside of the way nature would do something, you know, like a um, comedian Owen Benjamin says, sin makes you weaker. I like that as a guiding principle that takes some of the judgment out of it, judgment of others and judgment of yourself. Because like, if you think about it, nature and God, if you use those synonymously, When you do something that is not the way nature would do it, depending on the degree to how extremely deviant from the nature process it is, there will be ramifications and consequences that are 
you know, you could call them the wrath of God. <laughs> you know, like if you so grossly disobey the law of nature that says things fall when they're dropped by jumping off of a cliff, you know, the wrath of God, the punishment of your sin would be landing at the bottom of the, the cliff. And so to me, like I tend to not overthink karma or sin too much beyond the ramifications in observable and feelable consequence to what I do. Cause I think that it's caused a part. I think maybe it's been put on humanity, this idea of like, you know, it's part of this system of, Oh, just work hard for the masters. And if you're good, then your reward in the afterworld will be great. But if not, the afterworld's going to be even worse than this one slave. So, you know, be good. And uh, I don't know, that's kind of my take on it. That uh, the, demystify the whole concept and make it a little like because i don't really see the universe functioning on like punishing somebody repeatedly through multiple lifetimes but i do see the idea the value in the idea of learning something that you didn't quite learn in a previous life but when you really think about it most lives if they're a complete life you're gonna go through the gamut of most types of lessons in one form or another anyway so in that capacity like you know every life we're learning the same things and maybe just a slightly different structure or a vastly different structure, but there's only so many emotional tones and to work with, you know, like every painting has seven base colors, for example. Anyway, that's right. my really probably too much elaboration, but Emily <laughs> to you. Right. Well, so you brought up sin and karma, right? And sin just means, I know that we love, you know, there's all sorts of sort of religious overtones, but sin as a word, just means missing the mark. So you shouldn't, I mean, obviously you should not try to miss the mark so greatly that you go like murder a bunch of people or something, but like there are, so if you, but we don't Another like. Another meaning of sin is debt actually, which is interesting. Yeah. We don't like miss a basketball goal and then berate ourselves for years on end. Right. We just say, whoops. And then we probably don't think about it ever again, unless if that was like the shot of like the space jam game or whatever. But um, when you are, so when you're contemplating that, like one way that you might miss the mark in life is by developing a guilt complex, a shame complex. Oh, oh my God, a puppy, Um, you know, whatever kind of thing. Like, so sin is not something I would, worry about. But I do agree with you that karma, the word karma has been used probably by the same people who grew up with like guilt complexes from the word sin, right? Saying like, well, karma is going to get you. And it was like a revenge mechanism or some kind of a like cosmic way to deliver and exact your own comeuppance. But that's not what we're talking about. And when we are talking about this, it's like, thank goodness there's karma. Because what if you decided you were going to make yourself a delicious, I don't know, soup. And you know, because of karma, that if you turn on your oven or your burner and you put the onions and the whatever in the pot, that it will heat it up, right? That's an action you took that exacted a predictable reaction. We could consider that karma. Now, if you eat the soup and you eat too much soup and you get a, or whatever you're eating and you get a stomach ache, we could also say that's, right, that's a predictable outcome of something that happened. 
Where it gets complicated is when we have situations like children with illnesses who don't deserve that. Something that happens and it's senseless, right? Was that that person's karma? Well, no. We all operate within a container of action. The containers of action that have happened on the global scale, right? Um, Farming practices, ways that we've interacted with technology, governmental systems that have been set up, right? These sorts of things create collective karma too, some of which we benefit from, right? Electric lights, the internet, having enough food to eat, some of which we suffer from, right? Certain farming practices that make food unsustainable or cause the forest to burn, right? We have, right, there's good karma and bad karma. When it, well, actually, I wouldn't say that there's good karma and bad karma. I would say there's karma and then there's actions the things that come out, we perceive as good or bad, right? On the highest level. But of course, when we're like down here in the weeds, we're like, oh gosh, that seems bad and that seems good and whatever. But it's not that like the individual who had something bad happen to them had it coming to them. It's that collectively we created an environment where the reactions to the many actions, potentially of people this person doesn't even know, right? caused a particular action in the present moment. Yeah. So, yeah, we're talking like uh, cause and effect consequences and it's in, and when you hear they describe this way, you put the God down, <laughs> it can sound at first like we're deep. We're like deflating the morality out of the uh, concepts that have been helpful guiding principles to human morality, but in, but really not. We're, I think we're trying to take it more of the approach of judge, not lest ye be judged, <laughs> you know, a more hermetic, uh, all, all effects have a cause. And that in terms of the moral aspect of this, it is determinable through observing causes and effects that certain behaviors can be, known to be immoral because of the guaranteed effects that are resultant from that cause. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. I love this conversation. It's making me think about so many things, uh, including the fact that Saturn is exalted within Libra, you know, which makes a lot of sense when you think about that and look at it that way. Um, the cause and effect thing, you know, when I see people who are doing horrific things, I think what horrific things have been done to them, you know, and one of the things I got into um, during one of my last live streams about Libra is this connection and a video that I put out um, is this connection with Libra and bookkeeping and maintaining the books and uh, weighing, um, you know, different uh, whatever things you're going to sell, you know, grains and gold and whatnot. Um, and so there is this connection between Libra weighing things commerce and bookkeeping and so we get the lb for pound from libra uh the hashtag pound sign comes from libra as well it's this weird evolution that happened but uh there's this connection with books so liber right or library has libra right in there you know and so um i started thinking about this karmic thing that's very much appropriate for libra season um and it got me thinking about uh, the Akashic record, you know, and this this record that has basically all of, I guess, 
the worldly events on it or every single uh, cause and effect that has occurred, you know, but when you just look around on earth, it's almost kind of like, I'm just thinking about it now. It's like, is earth an Akashic record? So you go out and you see a a, a building that's uh, been abandoned. Well, what happened? You know, you see, you know, a forest uh, that was on fire several years ago, or you see anything around you, you see people disheveled or you see people doing well, or you see these different movements, you see the different uh, events that happen, you know, within the world, there is like a series of uh, causes and effects that created all of this. So in a way it's like, we think of the Akashic record or we think of like this book that has good and bad deeds on it or all of your good and bad deeds. And it's like, we're just living in that reality, you know? So in a way I almost feel like what we live in and what we experience day to day, it's like the living Akashic record in a lot of ways. So we are going to leave our like imprint here on this earth, you know, with every single action that we choose to take and, um, and all of that. But I just saw that you unmuted your mic. So what do you think of chance? I just want to throw it on top of another log on the fire for you that if we're yeah. on the plane of inertia <laughs> right now, and if this realm is more of a plane <laughs> and then, and, you know, it can still be an enclosed container. There can still be a dome shape going on. But like, if this is a plane we're on and it's a record, you know, then, and there's a pole that is like a spindle. Yeah. It's yeah. like a record on a, a record player or a DVD or a CD. It's, it's wild. That's right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, For one sure. of the things in the Akashic record, right, is our ability, like one of the access points that we have as a personal unit within the Akashic record is our ability to make memory. And like you love the Torah. So in the Torah, right, the high priestess is holding the Torah. What is the Torah? The book of the law. It's also the Akashic record, right? Um, which speaking of books or scrolls, in Libra, like this is making, hopefully that connection makes some sense. Oh right? yeah, absolutely. Then, For sure. Because if you think about the record as the record of action, but then you think about the law as being related both to the record of action and then also being related to Libra, we see that karma is the law and that um, Saturn being there, right, is our ability to make right measure and take right judgment because if you take wrong measure then your skill is going to get all out of whack right but forming memory is like a big key because it's we are all capable of modifying the karma of all of humanity but only if you take right judgment and part of that is forming clear accurate impressions right which is one way to form memory of what's going on around you right if you can't remember what happened well how do you know you want to change it right right yeah no exactly and the more you symbolically sin you know um and maybe you do things that are detrimental to your own spiritual emotional physical well-being the less you're accurate you're going to perceive reality you know your discernment's going to be off and you're not going to see things clearly so you're not going to make the appropriate judgment calls or or what have you so i like the fact that you're bringing it back to uh seeing clearly in vision and everything that's awesome (laughs) 
Cool. So, um, Gabe, did you want to show us uh, your astrological placements? <laughs> I'm chastising him because he just sent me like in a text form what I'm sure are sidereal placements. And I wanted like to look at his actual I, chart chart, but we don't have to do that. I think this might be. Uh, oh, no, you're right. I think this is sidereal. Yeah, I don't uh, even want to. <laughs> are you guys all... It's funny. I was just on the phone with someone yesterday discussing the coalescence between sidereal and tropical time. What do you mean coalescence? Oh, so so I read both. I prefer to read tropical. Um, I think it's most relevant to people on Earth right now. Well, speaking of where your head's facing, and if you this is what Kaylee says, my court astrologer. <laughs> you're looking at the earth as the basis for the zodiac in a way with tropical it's earth-based astrology in a sense because north always means what it means south always means what it means etc right also in the sidereal chart it's earth-based but instead of caring about the seasons or the time of year or understanding the relationship among the planets you're comparing the earth and all the planets to the backdrop of stars beyond it. So it's like we're sort of spiraling with both in this very slow sort of mechanistic and evolutionary unfolding in an expansive quality. And there's a way to understand astrology where you're not just reading sidereal or reading tropical, but you're understanding the greater backdrop of time and the unfoldment of human consciousness as it relates to both, both. Anyway, it's fun for some people. Well, uh, apparently, you know, I went most of my life identifying as a, a Leo uh, I'm early in August. Um, I'm a day after Barack Obama. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. He's like a weird spirit animal that shows up in my dreams and makes me clean my room. It's it's crazy. But, uh, but Did you say day before or day after Barack? I'm day after. Okay. Mm-hmm. What year? 77. I got okay. so many you know, about the, About the time of day? Uh, it can be a guess. It can be a rough estimate. Let's just say five in the five p.m. Might have been gotcha. three, but three or five somewhere in there. All right. I just want to know for my own information. <laughs> um, but yeah, all my life, you know, Leo, just straight up. But as I learn more and pay closer and closer attention, I believe that my sidereal pulls me into a cancerian orientation and the more i learn about what that might mean the more it starts to resonate with me so much uh in a major way in ways that creep me out and and so now i'm in this weird space and i kind of like it i kind of enjoy still identifying with the old way, but experimenting with this, like, wow, am I, there are two selves. I'm literally like looking at two selves, the self that was public. And I'm learning about this self that is private and what that means. Um, 
and it's kind of fun. Uh, but I feel like, you, you know, you, you can live in both worlds conceivably, but that's a lot of information to keep track of. <laughs> and eventually maybe you grow into the, into the, into the du jour, you know, and walk away from the de facto. Right. When I work long term with people, we have like four charts we layer on them, right? So we're, what you wind up reading is a much more complex picture. But with just your tropical birth chart, you're going to get a huge amount of information. You could spend years on that and have tons to look at. Um, it's when you're looking at sidereal. You can find very accurate information, but you're also looking at the backdrop of the starscape within which our solar system lands. And so there's, you know, there's more there. And you'll notice, like, you have relationship with certain fixed stars or placements. Like, if you um, allow your consciousness to wake and sleep, without light interruption, you'll probably wake up when the same stars are above your head every day, maybe. But things will start to, like, you'll you'll notice you have a relationship with those things, which is, of course, like, why all that stuff is in ancient Egypt and, you know, all the places, but... That, that's cool. That's like, that's literally where the rubber meets the road on the word light codes. You know, that those light codes are impressing upon you for your entire life. And they get deeper and deeper and deeper that in the way that they ingrain and impact you. Uh, and part of that is like why when you're younger, you're like, oh, this is silly. You know, you just don't have depth and context when you're young and it's all you know, and everything's flexible and you could you easy to change. But as you get older. I mean, they say that that is what happens to the uh, the folds of the brain, that they get deeper. And they, you know, it's like, uh, I think of like uh, tilling a field, you know, when you're young, you don't till very deeply. But as you get bigger and more substantial, the plow rows are, uh, yeah, more dramatic. Gabe, I, what I really wanted to know was what your tropical rising sign was. And I had guessed that it was Sagittarius. And I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> Based on putting it in your chart. And to me, that makes so much sense because you come off as like you're just see- perceiving things from so far away. <laughs> you even have like that Archer profile picture. It's pretty funny. It's definitely an appropriate rising sign for you. And Mars and Jupiter would have been in Gemini. So like you're very much driven after pursuing that Gemini truth and then Jupiter's blowing that up. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's some interesting placements here. <laughs> I feel like it reflects you very well. That's pretty cool. You and maybe the it. reason you why you like it. that cancer sun sign in the, in the uh, sidereal so much is because your Venus is in cancer. So like that's attractive to you. Who knows? Whoa, that's trippy. That's like a seriously amateur quick analysis. <laughs> you can you can bring it up if you want to share it with Emily or flash it. I'm I'm down. I'm ready for coming coming to Jesus moment here. Yeah. Well, what I pulled up doesn't have like the wheel. I didn't go to a good site, but it does put 
you know, just the basics of what house, what planets are in. And so it's not giving you the best love layer of relationships. I could get a better chart going, but yeah, we can go this way or we can talk about other things if we want. We don't have to get into the nitty gritty of Gabe's placements. I mean, I can zoom this in too. Yeah. What degree you think he's a one degree Sagittarius ascendant? What degree? degree? It's saying a 21st degree here. I don't know because I just put in a random Iowa town. I don't even know if you're born in Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) And we guessed 5 p.m. So we're not going to be exact here. We're kind of in a generalization. Mm -hmm. So come back later, Gabriel, with your uh, exact time of birth. And we'll. (laughs) Mercury in in its exaltation. That's pretty good. This is a, yeah, I would like to hear more expanding on this. Can Emily explain to us her method of, as to how she correlates the tropical and sidereal zodiacs? You know, I think I get the gist from what you're saying that you don't view them as separate per se. Right. So, which is the whole thing behind understanding like the unfolding of the Aquarian age, right? Is how is the tropical astrology chart sitting against the backdrop of stars right now. Right. So, and you know this, right? Because someone born 2000 years ago is very different, even if they had a very similar set of placements as someone today, they would be very different than us today, culturally, linguistically, um, in level of awareness on certain things, you know, for better or worse, depending on um, the arena we're speaking of, right? Just very different. And so, like, the way that we're backdropping against the stars, it moves so slowly, but it does move. And so a lot of the systems of astrology that we wind up using when you really get deep into things, a lot of them, so Western astrology actually tended to grow a bit more with the changing times. So you see like in the age of reason, a certain, there's like adaptation um, in the texts that they're writing as well as tradition, right? And then when we look at more ancient forms of astrology, which are also quite useful and shouldn't be ignored, right? Um, Grecian, Babylonian, um, certain ones from India, although the ones in India also you know, have a lot of modern day application that's completely um, worthwhile, right? When we when we compare the modern schools of astrological thought against ancient schools, um, the ones that we have access to, right, which a lot of them we don't, we have their symbols and certain texts and very little else, right? Um, and then there's a lot of, of course, like occult teachings on astrology that are hidden in, you know, church writings and all these things. Um, and so it's understanding what the backdrop of the age that we're in right now is. And that's going to temper every aspect of the astrology that goes on in someone's personal tropical chart. Does that make sense? You know, that's the big question is like, what age are we in? Mm-hmm. And I, so I I have been, I really have a problem with the, the 
dawning of the age of Aquarius idea. <laughs> and here's why. Here's why. Because we see so much subversion coming from, you know, <laughs> we talked about the the right side of the body bullying, the left side of the body, and the left side of the body passive aggressively whispering hateful secrets into the right side's ear. Well, in terms of how that plays out on the political spectrum, we know that subversion is more of a soft power ideological subversion when it comes from leftist powers, right? Whereas a more right side would be like, just straight up, we're going to come in and kick your ass and take over. (laughs) And right. So in terms of many different things that we see in spiritual or new age is a better word for it, you know, like, because ah, new age, new cage, literally the new age movement revolves around this idea of the age of Aquarius is coming. But if we have this belief that just around the corner, the new age is coming and it's going to be like in some way ushering in all kinds of enlightenment and things are going to be better because it's new age. And like, to me, this is the same utopiest dream that is sold by left, left leaning political movements and scientism. (laughs) Really? They kind of go together um, because the, the, the real branding of the, of communism now is the technological data driven overlords that know what you want before, you know, and don't worry, we'll just give it, give you exactly what you want, <laughs> which is slavery. So my point with all this is I think we may have been sold a bill of goods about the age of Aquarius being about to come on, especially I'm not saying that there's no value in calculating processional ages or that shifts don't happen, but if you go by the calculations of Julius Caesar's court astrologers or that which are attributed to him, then the age of Aquarius would have actually began back in like 1746. And when you look at the changes that occurred in the world from that time and then onward, especially as industry revved up and, you know, America or the United States coming online a little bit after that, it kind of is super fitting to say, to see an age shift there. And my only point in, in bringing this out isn't to like, you know, be spiteful or I'm not hating on you. If anybody out there or anyone in this conversation thinks the age of Aquarius is coming, but the question becomes like, well, how do you calculate what age you're in? And modern astronomers have these tools to calculate the age where they're able to do things like see, you know, block out the sun's effulgence and be able to see What's behind it? Like you couldn't do that in the ancient world. At the very least, you were probably gauging the age based on what was like an hour or so before the sun rose on the ascendant. So it depends on where you're marking and where you're marking from. And if we go back to the guys <laughs> so, so that gave the most recent version of a calendar to us, which seems like a reasonable group to go back to in their calculations, we would have already crossed the threshold into Aquarius quite a ways back. So anyway, what do you guys think about that rant? Huh? (laughs) Well, I would say like, I agree with you that maybe new age hippie culture painted the age of Aquarius 
pretty quickly in an exciting way. And they did that with good reason, right? Because there were teachers who were around at that time who did know, who said the hopeful news that, by the way, the Aquarian age is coming and this is going to be an age where things get better for humanity. Right. I have, and by the way, I have no beef with things getting better. <laughs> I have beef with it's going to happen on its own or somebody else is going to do it for you. You know what I mean? Right. And here's where I would share something with you is we're so yes, in the 1700s, we started that cusping range. And for the next 300 years, we're still going to be in that cusping range. The people who are incarnate today are dismantling the old system by the very things that are annoying us about reality right now. You, you named several, um, but there are a lot of things that are annoying, right? If you just have to walk around in the world and you'll be like, that was 2020 till now, there was a lot that you just probably were like, well, these are some irksome things that just keep popping up that I don't really want to have to care about. Right. Those those things, the things that are happening now, the things that will be happening our entire lifespans are so that we can't, I mean, I'm not saying like on the mundane field of reality, yeah, they're annoying, whatever, all these things are happening. But on another field of reality, what we're trying to do as far as from the view of the ages is we're trying to dismantle an old system where mechanisms of control were in place where people were complicit in their own suffering and where the enlightenment and the good things of life were available only to the controlling few, right? And so, like, are we going to get to, like, step into the actual full-fledged Aquarian age that's going to be happening in a thousand years and be like, cool, we live here now. They'll have their own system of things that have you know, happened and and they'll have their own layers of consciousness that they're working at for us right now in the backdrop against the stars. The thing that we're working at is trying to figure out how can life be good for all people and not just some people? How can life be good without there being a downside, right? How can life be good without me taking from someone else? And how do I understand that when I take from someone else, I'm actually taking from myself, right? That's that requires a lot of things to be dismantled. And this is where all of the conversations that people are having more or less skillfully in terms of everything from how we show up. Are we just passive? Do we, do we not chase? We attract or do we go after what we want or do we, right? What are we doing? A lot of conversations like that, different levels of skillfulness being involved. But what everybody's doing who's alive today who showed up here is like, shepherding this age in. And so I would suggest to you that the very thing you just said, which was you have a problem with people who are like, well, it's just going to happen. So who am I to do something is because you're a person who showed up to do something. And I very much feel, I very much feel the intense urge to take action in order to hearken this in. Um, Personally, for me, what I try to do is to put information that will be useful for people in the coming age into the hands of people who can use it. I think you're doing something similar. There's lots of things we could all be doing though. We could garden. We could pee in the yard in the morning. I don't know. <laughs> whatever whatever you're um whatever you're doing though, 
these are the very actions by way we're hearkening in this thing. And then there'll be these people in like 300 years who won't even remember us. (laughs) I like what you're saying about how do we do uh, commerce or exchange without participating in the harm that seems to have been the way that the system was put into place in the first place. Cause I and think that's about a tricky like, question. Cause even in alchemy, Gabe Mercury to give something to some, uh, to something else has to take something from something else. It's almost like it, is that baked in there's to the, middleman the construct? Right. I right. don't know. The middleman factor. Yeah. And like, this is a thought experiment I've been having with myself and it's kind of, uh, there's a fella, uh, he's published, he did an, he's a professor and he's doing an experiment with his students. And he says, okay, there's a serial killer and he's well known. He killed all these, tells him all the, you know, the details. And he says, and I've got his sweater that he was wearing when he killed those people. And I just want to know if I give you five bucks, will you put the sweater on? Raise your hand. And so, some people raise their hand and other people like they actually like put their hand behind the back. They're like, that. And he'll, he'll actually pick out people's reaction, physical reaction and ask them like, why are you so repulsed by it? And it's a, it's a test to see how much people are invested in karma. And mm-hmm. then, uh, and so some of the people who are like, ah, I don't care. Yeah. Give me, I'll take five bucks to wear a sweater. And then you pull the sweater out and it's got like a blood stain still on it. And then some of those people's hands go down, but then some of the people's hands, they stay, they stay up. They're like, yeah, bring it on. I'll put it on. And then the people around them will be repelled by them. The people sitting next to them by the guy who's like, Oh, it's got blood on it. Yeah. I'll wear it all day. The people around them will actually be like, I don't want to sit by you anymore. Okay. Now this is, um, this is, uh, and he's published, I forget his name, I forget the experiment, but it's pretty profound stuff. And then the, you know, you could take that experiment to the next level. You can really dig into like, how do you get the guy who's like, I'll wear it all day. How do you convince him that maybe there's something karmically attached that he doesn't want to engage in? And now take that experiment and superimpose it onto the blood money of the system that we're trying to work with is all of the cash. Has it all been run through the drug wars? Has it all been run through international trade markets and all the tainting that you could imagine? I mean, I don't want to get too dark, but is there too much attached to the monetary system that people are just sick in the stomach at the thought of engaging it? Uh, And so theoretically, is it time for something new? Is it time for a new sweater? That's well, really interesting metaphor, dude. Thank you. That is interesting. Also, like, what is the sweater? Because we could think of it as money or a financial system, but we could also think of it as we are all human beings. The things you're referring to as the actions of human beings. We, you know, unless we're sleeping with our heads to the north all day, we can't shed. <laughs> We can't take the sweater off, right? Um, the sweater of your body, right? And the sweater of your your reality. And so, 
yeah, you do wonder um, things like that, but it's also like we all chose to be incarnate and to live in a body. And so in a certain way, even though we are actively trying to clean our portion of the sweater, (laughs) maybe we're not the part with the blood on it. We're like a thread in the sweater. We are, you know, we're the work that the people who are doing to try to combat the harm. Does this make sense? Like it's. Yeah. Maybe we're starting up a laundromat. Maybe we're in, maybe we are the sweater. (laughs) (laughs) Man, that is wild. Yeah. Well, you know, I thought this comment, the Zodiac is the sweater. To nice. me, that's interesting because I, you know, the more I study language, symbolism, astrotheology, mythology, the more I see that the value in myth seems to be diluting over time. Like, <laughs> you know, most people's idea of who is Zeus or who is Thor came from their high school teacher's version of telling them about it or, you know, a cartoon that they saw, something like that. And and then, okay, so I'm seeing it like this game of Chinese whispers or telephone, but the, the rules of the game at an earlier part of the the game were like really crazy, such as that whole Lumashi concept that. I've been bringing up often, which is this priestly wordplay, priestly pun craft where like, you know, you have a constellation, you have an asterism, you take the phonetics of that asterism, you run it through multiple languages and numerical ciphers. And eventually like to try to summarize something I've talked about at length before, you have turned the Pegasus square into Noah's Ark and, or the garden of Eden. And there's a snake in the middle of it and it's offering an apple to uh, a woman, <laughs> you know, and then that, that's early versions of Lumashi, but like it's gone on and on. And what this concept, like to, I guess, explain it a little better. We're talking about an original mythology or narrative applied to the stars. That was an attempt to encode and describe what nature does in its cycles and seasons. And then mythologies in form of storytelling created to preserve that knowledge but the mythologies were based on crafting something clever out of all the interplay of the language and symbols and phonetics that were attributed as names to the asterisms and constellations. And then new writers picking up the mythology who never even looked at the constellations or knew that they were in some way involved and writing their, this is what I heard the myth was and writing that down. <laughs> and then that process repeating God knows how many times to the point where they're not even in a book, it's on a movie or on a TV screen. And so like, we're getting many, many spin cycles <laughs> in the wash and like, is the sweater, you know, it, whatever was printed on the sweater is totally faded and worn off or the colors all faded out. You know what I mean? So that question of, is it time for a new Zodiac? That is an interesting question because I do wonder how much our collective psychodrama plays out the way that it does because of the astro logos that we've generationally been continually seeded with through all the stories that are at one level or another based on it (laughs) intentionally or not usually intentionally. You know, it's a big question. Like is, is there a level of psyche? Is there a a psychic dimension? Is the astral realm itself a metaverse created out of language and symbolism 
and in that way kind of removed from reality at least one degree. I don't know. Maybe it is time for a new sweater. Well, we don't have control over the Zodiac, right? In the same way that you yourself, no matter how hard you try, won't be able to convince the sun not to rise tomorrow. It's like we have we have power, but we have limited personal power. And to gain higher degrees of power requires a reverence with the numerical and linguistic system that is being shown by the astrologos in its purest form. See, that's a really good point that it's not just about coming up with a story that is appropriate to describe the cycles of nature in an allegory, but it's also like, how are you encoding the, (laughs) you know, the numerical patterns in the cycle of Venus, which is the ruler of this constellation. And why did we decide that? Because it has this numerical relationship. And how is that relating to what we understand about scales and notes and octaves? And how is it, you know, how is it pertaining to the seat, the cycles of the moon and the numbers 14 and 28? And like, it goes on and on. And so, yeah, maybe it's not about, obviously we can't change the stars of the constellations, but maybe it's not so much about crafting a new zodiac, but finally understanding the one that we have, (laughs) you know, like where it came from the original intent behind it, how it's been allegorized in everything all the time forever. And we've been missing the note, missing the memo. Right. Right. Or translating it or updating it for modern sensibilities. You know, Um, I think that is probably what's going to happen anyway. I think that's all that always happens with the zodiac so it's uh it's a living sort of document it's a living breathing sort of thing so when you look at older star maps i mean there's so many variations out there of what the people at the time saw and what they considered to be more important and so i think it's an interesting thought because i think it's going to happen anyway but who's going to have the consensus over you know what this constellation is um, that's going to be the main thing. So if you're a royal family and you have a lot of influence and you have court astrologers and you can pay the people to create the maps and, uh, you know, put it out there, then obviously they're going to have the upper hand with everything. Um, but that's just what happens. So uh, a lot of powerful people, a lot of powerful groups have made their own versions of the Zodiac and made their own versions of star maps. And I'm interested in learning all of them. And so we definitely aren't at the end of the line. We're going to see updates. You know, it may not be in our lifetime or whatever, but it's going to happen. And opinion. usually the changes are around like, grant me the divine right of authority, please. Put me up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that would be a flaw in interpretation. But I would suggest to you, right, to be careful with that line of thought too deeply, because what we're looking at when we look at astrology is similar to what you look at when you look at like, what is the chemical makeup of a diamond or of a ruby, right? How are these intrinsically, like, what are the mathematical measurable properties of this, right? And then the interpretation, yeah, you can pay an astrologer money to be like, oh, you're going to have such a good year. Yes, you know, you're in charge, right? But to, um, you could no sooner like throw out the actual meaning in astrology that can be gleaned by someone who can read it, um, then you could throw out understanding that apples grow on apple trees at this time of the year, right? Like it's, there's a certain piece of it that's fact, 
And then from those facts, of course, you could make a spin cycle and be like, well, this person's in charge and they have the divine right. But you could definitely, um, if you have eyes to see, still read reality from it. Right. Oh, yeah. I hear exactly what you're saying. So if you take it too far, you know, and there's no uh, tradition that it's kind of like tapped into, then is it going to stick? Is it going to work? I just think about, uh, you know, a lot of the um, constellations that I get into, like Libra as an example. Uh, So, you know, it's the scales, but uh, some of my resources have said that actually it was the Tower of Babel at one point. And then other resources have said other things about what Libra looked like um, and how it was part of Virgo, you know, so there's this, it's just this constant evolution. So um, that's why I like to just look at all of the variations out there and just kind of glean it all and syncretize all of that. Um, And I'm just assuming that these variations probably aren't going to end, you know, anytime soon. Totally. But we always know, like when you see Libra, you're like, oh, that's a depiction of karma. Like you just need one word. And then a person who knows will know. Of course, the Tower of Babel is a great example, too. Right. Because every time a Venus ruled sign, its opposite is a Martian ruled sign. The Tower of Babel, tarot people, right, relates to the 16 the tower, right? Which is the Mars card. What is Mars, but spontaneous enlightenment action, right? And, or action towards something that you want to have. And so we find that whatever Libra does is she inspires our spontaneous enlightenment action by showing us the reality of the present moment, which in every instance, white, right? Is an opportunity to awaken to that truth of karmic action, reaction, or the Tower of Babel, right? So anyway, I love that you brought that up. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Well, I know just thinking about the Tower of Babel and the connections here and the correspondences, it's really getting my mind going. So when I first read that, I'm like, oh, snap, dude, that is like a whole well of information right there. So that's getting me going right now, for sure. And then Mario, uh, when you start doing interviews, better have Emily on your channel. Ooh, yeah, absolutely. Emily, I just have to say, dude, I've always appreciated your perspective but you are leveling up. I think you are clearly leveling up and it's really awesome to see um, just some of the things you've shared and everything else. Like uh, I'm impressed and uh, I just like your angle with everything. So I feel like I just had to say that. Oh, thank you so much. Well, it's fun when you guys started talking about Hebrew letters, I was like, Oh, we're getting into it. Nice. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like the full deep end here, but good call. Absolutely. I would so love to have a conversation. Anytime you want to come on again, Emily, just tell me you have an open invitation. If you happen to see a subject that I'm posting that is going to be the subject and you would just like to weigh in on what we're talking about, even without being, you know, the main featured guest, you're totally welcome. I have a regular stable of, of, uh, you know, support like Mario brought him in. Cause I know you guys mesh so well together. And I could go on in this conversation, but I have to just like force the end here because of getting on a plane in the morning and I got to wake up pretty early. So I, I I don't like to have to do that, but I do like the reason because I'm going to this music and sky festival that I've been getting so excited about for like half a year. So we got to wrap it up, but you guys feel free 
Let's get Gabriel in, then Mario, and then we'll let Emily finish and give plugs, closing thoughts, and you know where people can find more of what you do. And uh, yeah, Gabe, then Mario, then Emily. Man, I feel like a can just got opened up for me. I'm going to be processing uh, that idea, Mario, about Libra and the Tower card. Uh, I I have to admit, I had my Tower card somewhere else, but now, I mean, throw the book at him. Yes. Throw the book at him. Sure, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so it's so obvious now that you've mentioned it. The Tower of Babel and Libra. Thank you. Uh, it's going to take a while to put my brain back in. <laughs> yeah, uh, man, you got it. Yeah, yeah it makes it, sense. It, that tower moment is like cosmic justice. Right. And and I always, I mean, I, I've always said that the tower card means you're building something up in, that implies that it will come back down. So there's this build up and take down. Exactly. That's why the Aries opposite to Libra thing makes sense. It's the rise of the by car- law of karma, what goes up must come down. The rise means that there's a fall. Dude, Mario, you totally rearranged everything. That's awesome. I love nice. it. Nice. Thank you. Happy to do it, dude. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, uh, oh, I did have one uh, one question real quick, Emily. Uh, do you see that there is um, examples of people hiding their birthday on purpose, public figures hiding their birthday on purpose and or hiding their death day on purpose. Is oh, cause I, I wanted to bring this up too. When we, when you just mentioned the death of the queen, like Emily, yeah. do you think that they just gave us her death in Virgo season and she was probably dead for a while? That's a great question. Honestly, I, I know that there's a lot of richness in celebrity news of the moment, pop cultural astrology, but I'm so tapped out of that realm that like, I don't, I didn't look at the chart for when the queen died. I know a couple things just from having like used her as an example at one point because she had a lot of earth placements. Um, I would understand hiding your astrology because I don't super relish handing my chart to people. I will when coerced, but I'm sometimes like, you don't need to know that. (laughs) Give it back. (laughs) Right. Um, So, so maybe I could see people doing that, or I could see if someone wanted to create a particular type of story and they had an astrologer on their team, they might want to do that. But also the world unfolds in really precise ways. And so often no no hiding needs take place for the writing to be on the wall. And I would doubt it if they would hide it too much because they don't think astrologers are that good. Like good astrologers don't, good astrologers assume that people can't read the astrology because they're using particular types of astrology that a lot of people can't read. That's cool. That's kind of like uh, different ciphers in Gematria. Mm-hmm. And who knows, like when you ask with Gematria, you're like, okay, well, was this, you're like, did some genius figure this out or does the universe just make that much sense? And yeah. when you that code, you're like, can I, 
am I seeing through a matrix of a man-made phenomenon on purpose, or am I seeing through a matrix of the nature of true reality? And a piece of understanding true reality is understanding that the matrix is a co-creation with human beings as implied by the root of matrix symbolizing both a womb. And if we look at Sanskrit, right, the matrika malini, um, literally like the matrix of existence, the womb of little mothers are the words we speak. Wow. Ooh, Say that again, something please? else yeah, about Cypher I love that. or, or Sefer, S-P-R, Shinpei Resh, is that that word can also refer to a literary character. So in terms of, you know, the royals referring to their monogram as their cipher, are they pointing out that they're, they are playing a character, you know, that like publicly, I'm Prince so-and-so, but like all this is a fucking play. Cause I think that it's a, I, I do think that the, there's a strong possibility that even major figures like Queen Elizabeth have been played by actors and actresses at different points of their career when they make appearances. I don't know. Yeah, man. Insert Pinocchio reference here. (laughs) It's hard to tell from an outside, right? Like when we're sitting back, you're like, but you do. I think, I think what most people are super aware of is like what we are fed by the media is not necessarily true. Right. And so a lot of us, I think it sounds like yourself and, you know, we're looking at it and we're like, wait, I don't necessarily trust this. And so we're looking for ulterior. Yeah, because who's Medea in mythology? (laughs) Medea and Circe, right? Aren't they both the handmaidens of Medusa? Yeah, and Medea cast illusions on Jason all day. Yeah. Yeah, I thought about that. To kill his own children or something crazy. Yeah, and Cersei too, because that was her whole thing in Game of Thrones. That was the name of the queen, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I never watched that one. I'm just, I thought you meant the goddess in uh, mythology. But I I did. But they were the two names of, I think, I think it was, they were Medusa's handmaidens, but I could be. Probably, yeah. That's funny. I was like a lot about Medusa around here. (laughs) Pretty sure that's the, you know, the whatever cult is behind Medea or me media has a lot to do with some Medusa veneration. Man, this is crazy because we're having this conversation about is it man made fictional or is it a natural cosmic, you know, something on a level that is hard to even speak. And just today, I was looking for a picture of the original mythological Circe. And all I could find on the surface level search was all the Hollywood, Bollywood baloney that I don't even care about. I was, it was repulsive. Uh, uh, but I just had to tweak my thinking to dig deeper to find the image I was looking for. And that is just so funny that I was trying to sift through that the the fiat to find the you know the historical gold just today and here it is on this conversation falling right in the perfect context that's pretty weird pretty wild okay mario can you hit us with some parting shots (laughs) yeah 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 for sure absolutely um 
Yeah. So just real quick regarding this Tower of Babel thing, um, you know, I think one of the words that's coming up a lot as I'm researching scales and Libra and swords is uh, conjunction and the conjunction of two things, you know. And so the Tower of Babel is like, you know, heaven meets earth sort of thing. And that was the idea, right, to build a tower to the heavens. And uh, it came down and things were split apart. And I didn't realize that there's a lot of other myths that are very similar. There's like tower coming down myths that sometimes it's been interpreted as uh, a tree, as an example. Um, you know, this big world tree that gets hit by lightning or a god severs all of the branches and chops it all down, whatever. Um, and it's fascinating to me that this tower coming down split up the uh, cultures uh, and gave them different languages so they couldn't hear each other. There's variations on this theme, either the people building the tower, they couldn't understand each other, or this tower came down and these new languages were introduced. And so it sounded like Babel to everybody who was present. Right. Um, well, of course, the tower reminds me of the Axis Mundi. Uh, if we're talking about geocentrism and everything else, the world pillar, the world tree. And I just have to say uh, for some of the people who've been following this thread for a while with us. Uh, I came across information that is fascinating that says that uh, Ursa Major and Ursa Minor in ancient China at one point, they were referred to as the Jade Scales. And so to me, so they weren't dippers, they weren't plows or bears. It was actually two sides of one big cosmic scale. And when you actually look at a Jade Scale, do you mind if I share my screen just really quick, Chance? Cool. So when you look at these older ancient jade scales, hopefully you can see this. Can you guys see my screen? Yeah. Notice that one pan is complete and then the counterweight is smaller. It's a piece of jade. And so you can move the counterweight back and forth for different measurements for different weights. Um, but this That's does way remind me way of weighing. <laughs> isn't that interesting? Yeah, I know. So I was staring at this image and I'm like, oh, wow, this is really intriguing. Ursa major would be the big scale and then Ursa minor would be this counterweight, hence the jade scales. So I, thought I just that realized like the first thing after we're done here is I'm going to go weigh my luggage and make sure it's under 50 pounds for the plane. Oh. Like put it on a scale. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice, nice. Right on. So, uh, I'm going to be getting into some of this symbolism on Friday. So on Friday, I'm doing a uh, live lecture. I'm calling it Seven Gates to the Great Beyond. I'm talking about the symbolic value of the number seven and how there's a lot of uh, different myths and stories and just uh, works of art and stuff that suggest that there's seven main levels uh, to the afterlife journey. So I think this is very appropriate for Libra season as well. Because the scales are often used before somebody goes on their afterlife journey. There's this judgment to be made. Um, and this is the point in the sky clock at the equinox where you go into the underworld journey. The boom. sun begins its underworld journey. That's right. That's right. Exactly. I'm also finding some intriguing connections with the justice card and judgment as well. The Can I throw another card. thing on for you there, Mario? Please. The seven dude. layers of it. heaven. Yeah. Well, the five months of winter are the months of hell or suffering because in the places where this mythology came from, it wasn't really like cold for six months. It wasn't half and half of the year. There's seven summer months symbolized mm. in things like seven Asiatic churches or seven heavens. 
And then there's the five uh, months of suffering or, or hell or the cave of Brahm, you know? Yeah. Well, depending on where you live, the summer months can be very devastating <laughs> and bring about a lot of death and has been associated with the underworld as well. And so, um, so I'll be getting into some of this stuff on Friday at seven, uh, on my YouTube channel. Um, so I'm really stoked about it. It's going to be intriguing and hopefully some of you guys can make it. And, uh, thanks for the invite. And Emily, it was awesome talking to you again. It was awesome talking to you too. And just, just something on the seven. I love that you're doing that. The seven spheres of heaven are also often the seven orbitals of the zodiac and of course the seven spheres in the human body the chakras the tree of life the you know um you know yeah no that's right the other thing yeah that i think you mentioned is the sun is in its fall in libra and it literally starts fall and so what does it mean to have the sun fall and what does that represent with the tower of babel and the fact that the tower card is often considered to be a card of a gift. I know it's really scary looking, but it's a flash of super conscious enlightenment, right? And when that happens, it's like our tower falls down because the very things we've strived our whole lives for, we're like, oh, that wasn't the thing. Whoopsie right. daisy. Um, anyway, I'll wrap it up. No, but no. thank you. Well put. Thank you guys. Thanks. Yeah, where Thanks. can they find you? Remind them of the class you're doing. Oh, yeah. So I'm teaching a class called Astrology Academy. It starts next Wednesday, right when eclipse season starts. It's going to be great. You learn how to read your chart. I've had professionals take it. I've had brand new people take it. You will know at the end how to read your chart and how to use it as a map. Um, and you'll get weekly meetings with me if you're in there um, that you can choose to attend. And it's going to be really fun. Um, thank you guys for having me on. Anybody who's interested in working with me further, you know, I do readings. I have a membership, which is a really great thing. I have this class um, and I have a book coming out, too, in winter. So when that happens, you know, that's cool. Yeah, I can't wait nice. to hear more about that. That's yeah. Right. At some point, I'll tell people about it. It's just it's a book on astro yoga, but That's what awesome. else? What else? Anyway, thanks That's for very exciting. Me. Congrats on uh the work that it takes to put a book out. Love it. Well, it's not finished yet, but I think <laughs> you must be confident enough that it will be to be telling us though. So I have a good feeling that it is coming for sure. It, it's coming. It's coming out. So yeah, anybody who wants to learn astrology, hop in Astrology Academy. And you guys, it's such a pleasure to talk to each of you. Um, Chance, Gabriel, Mario, you guys are great. Yeah, we might have to come up with a name for this combination. <laughs> it's like, anyway, uh, like a, a, our band name, you know, because <laughs> uh-huh. we've done this, this foursome before. But all right, guys, I'll catch you all later. Um, there will be an interverse this Sunday. I've got it lined up to premiere. So watch out for that. I might not be in the chat while it's premiering, but it is happening. Probably no vibrant though, because I will still be traveling um, remotely possible. I might do something crazy and stream at a odd time, but probably not probably going to enjoy my time off. So <laughs> y'all have went next Wednesday free do as you will. And uh, <laughs> thank you friends for coming on and talking with me. Thanks everyone in the chat. I'll catch you guys all. 
next time that you see me, I'll be uh, returned from a huge adventure. So can't wait to tell you about it. Good night, everybody. Much love. So much fun.